Hello and welcome to another episode of Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm your host Mark, thank you for joining me once again and huge thanks to our most recent Patreon supporters. Uh, So the following people have signed up to support us on Patreon in the past week. That's Dan C, Annabelle Jane, Laura, Devon Oscarsaurus, Lauren Tell, Mary Ann, Tyler Hill, Rachel Caswell, Tracy Anita and Katie. Thank you so much and also huge thanks to all of our existing Patreon supporters. Um, If you want to join the Cool Gang and gain access to loads of exclusive stuff then you can head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. It's a harrowing case this week so let's just dive right in. I think it's a case of the sooner we start, the sooner we finish, and I'm desperate to put this one to bed. On the 13th of October in 2019, 33-year-old Richard Huckle's life came to a premature end in the most brutal way imaginable. With his hands and feet tightly bound, Richard was subjected to a torrent of abuse and torture so ferocious that I feel compelled to issue a warning here. If you are easily offended by graphic descriptions of violence and sexual abuse, then this is definitely one to sit out. Of course, I've sanitised the sexual abuse. It's child sexual abuse in today's episode, but we do discuss it. So, um, so yeah, if, uh, if you really, if that's triggering for you, then I hate using that word, but it's, um, it's apt at this point. So if that's, uh, if that's triggering for you, then please perhaps think about moving on. What follows is right up there with the murder and torture of French research students Laurent Bonomo and Gabriel Ferrez. See Season 2, Episode 24 for more on that one. It was a truly harrowing case that gave me nightmares for weeks and if you remember anything about it, it's probably that their living room resembled an abattoir by the time their killer had finished with them. Anyway, we're not here to talk about them, we are here to talk about Richard Huckle. So let's do just that. In real time, I hope that's not getting old, please let me know if it is. It's Sunday the 13th of October in 2019. In six months time, life will be forever changed when a mutant strain of SARS is unleashed on the world. But this is a future that Richard Huckle won't get to see. His life is coming to an end today. The sunshine of the previous day has been replaced with dark clouds and rain now. There is a sense of foreboding in the air. That kind of quiet but threatening calm that comes before a storm. For Richard Huckle, the day starts out like any other. Bound by routine, he gets up early, has his breakfast, and then tidies up before relaxing in his room. It has all the hallmarks of a typical Sunday. But of course, this Sunday will be anything but typical. As Richard reclines on his bed, the door bursts open and a man he recognises bounds in with a manic look in his eyes. The man is Paul Fitzgerald. We'll describe him as a neighbour of Richard's for now. Paul makes for Richard, hands stretched out in front of him. Before Richard has time to get up off his bed, Paul's hands around his throat, squeezing the life out of him. With his airways severely restricted, Richard becomes dizzy and sort of compliant now. Paul uses medical bandages to bind Richard's hands and feet together and to gag him. Richard is shaking with fear. As adrenaline courses through his veins, he is no longer able to control his body. He knows of Paul's reputation, what he's capable of, and he fears for his life. 
Worse than that, though, he fears the impending pain and suffering. Unimaginable torture from which death will be a sweet release. But he'll have to wait for that. Richard is stretched out on his bed, unable to get up, his pathetic attempts at calling for help muffled by his tightly bound gag. Paul flips him over and yanks his tracksuit bottoms down. He grabs a large kitchen spoon he has brought with him and violently thrusts a handle into Richard's anus, perforating his rectum. Richard yelps in agony. He can feel a warm liquid run down his leg. He knows it's blood, his blood. Paul proceeds to rape Richard now. When he is finished, he drags him from his bed and smashes his face onto the floor six or seven times. Richard's jaw is severely broken. It's hanging off its hinges at a curious angle. His face looks more peculiar and uneven than usual now. Paul looks at him and then proceeds to punch him in the head repeatedly. Richard's given up trying to scream now. He is resigned to his fate and barely conscious, praying that death will come soon. Paul uses a knife he has fashioned out of a pen and a blade to stab Richard in the neck. Blood spurts out and then as Richard attempts to breathe, blood sprays from the wound like a red mist from an aerosol can. Not finished, Paul strangles Richard with a homemade ligature before ramming the blade atop a pen at Richard's nostril. With some force it passes through bone and penetrates his brain some three inches deep. Sweet release has come to take him to the other side. Richard is dead now. With the attack over, Paul slumps back on the bed, exhausted. His campaign of torture and murder has lasted 75 minutes. He is sweating profusely, covered in blood and panting like a rabid dog. He surveys the room. Richard is slumped on the floor, blood all around him. The room has a peculiar smell of feces, blood and sweat. It's all over now. Paul has served what he will later go on to describe as poetic justice. Now, if you've managed to get to this point, then uh, you've done well. So I think um, I know I'm in need of a little break now and I'm sure you are too. So let's uh, let's take a breather here. Okay, so we left Richard slumped on the floor, covered in blood, having been sexually assaulted with a kitchen implement, brutally raped, throttled, punched, stabbed and beaten. It was a prolonged attack that lasted for 75 minutes. An attack that saw Richard physically shake with fear before it had even got going. An attack that left him with his jaw hanging off its hinges. An attack that left him dead at the age of 33. Richard Huckle was a loving son, a committed Christian, a philanthropist. So why then was his death widely celebrated? Well, at the time of his murder, Richard Huckle was serving 22 life sentences at Full Sutton Prison in East Yorkshire, having been found guilty of 71 sexual offences against children. Despite appearances to the contrary, Huckle was not a legitimate student, photographer, English teacher and philanthropist committed to helping impoverished children with their education. He was a vile predator responsible for a prolonged campaign of child rape in some of the most deprived communities in Southeast Asia. A truly despicable man. Branded Britain's worst paedophile by the tabloids, Richard Huckle's crimes included multiple instances of child rape, the possession and distribution of photos and videos depicting child sexual abuse and rape, 
the creation of photos and videos depicting child sexual abuse and rape, child abuse, the creation of a paedophile manual entitled Paedophiles and Poverty, Child Lover's Guide, the digital penetration of a child under the age of 12, and raising money for his activities via a crowdfunding website. His victims ranged in age from 6 months to 12 years old. One was abused while wearing a nappy, and another was abused for a number of years between the ages of 5 and 12. Huckle was depraved. He urinated on naked children. He encouraged them to abuse each other and he documented it all. This doesn't even begin to convey what a wicked, wicked man he was. Richard Huckle belonged to a website called The Love Zone, which was hidden away in a shadowy corner of the dark web. On this now defunct site, Huckle shared photos and videos of his crimes with 45,000 members. He boasted about his vile exploits to other paedophiles, posting comments such as Hit the jackpot, a three-year-old girl as loyal to me as my dog, and nobody seemed to care. And impoverished kids are definitely much easier to seduce than middle-class kids. In a series of postings in 2013, he admitted to sexually abusing four girls from the same family and wrote that he wanted to marry a girl he had raped from the age of seven and have children with her. In total, prosecutors would go on to find 20,000 photos and videos featuring 29 confirmed victims, although it's widely believed the true figure is closer to 200. And don't forget, this is no Jimmy Savile. This guy is not in his 80s. He was 33 at the time of his death, and in little over a decade, he had built up this staggering portfolio of victims. So who was Richard Huckle and how the hell did he get away with such depravity for so long? Well, let's take you back to the very beginning. Huckle was born into a middle-class church-going family in Ashford in Kent in April 1986. By his own admission, he had a very ordinary upbringing. He was a pupil at the Harvey Grammar School and later at South Kent College, and he was also a regular worshipper at Ashford Baptist Church. Those who went to school with him said he was a bit of a loner, but nothing out of the ordinary. Huckle had his first taste of travel at the age of 16, when he took part in a month-long expedition to visit a school in Namibia. It's widely believed that this trip inspired his later modus operandi of targeting his abuse in impoverished, vulnerable communities in third world countries. Countries where he would be lauded as a rich westerner and welcomed into poor families with open arms. After leaving education, Huckle briefly worked in a mobile phone factory before setting off across the world on a gap year, leaving on a plane bound for Malaysia in 2005 at the age of 19. There he taught English and, like many, decided to combine this with his passion for travelling. Now, we don't know if Huckle abused any children during this gap year. He certainly wasn't charged with any abuse from this time, but it is highly likely that he was active as far back as 2005. What we do know is that the following year, he visited Cambodia for two weeks and, while staying with a local family, took in decent images of their three-year-old child. Further visits to the country saw him sexually abuse two sisters who were aged four and six, and he also sexually abused a two-year-old girl around this time. Devastatingly, his campaign of abuse went unchecked for nearly a decade. 
Huckle would spend extended periods of time in Malaysia between 2006 and 2011, returning home to his parents' house in Kent periodically, where he continued to be active in the local church. And just a side note here, officers investigated his activities while on leave, if you like, in the UK. Uh, He was actively involved with his local church in Kent and also with a church in London. And officers were satisfied that he had no victims in this country. There is a, a bit more to it. Uh, the police in this country referred themselves to the IPCC, um, but ultimately, uh, yeah, th- there were no victims in this country. In 2011, Huckle moved to Kuala Lumpur, where he enrolled as a student at the Metropolitan University. He didn't complete his studies, but his attendance at the university gave him an air of legitimacy, gaining him access to orphanages and schools, where he often posed as a freelance photographer. Once trust had been established between Huckle and the various orphanages and schools, he would attach himself to the most vulnerable children, offering days out to theme parks, photography lessons and assistance with their English. With the families and support workers happy to have such a seemingly generous, educated Englishman in their midst, Huckle began profiting from his sexual abuse at this time. At one point, he crowdfunded the release of indecent images of a three-year-old girl in exchange for bitcoins, achieving 105% of his target. And this really is what sets Huckle apart from other paedophiles. He sought to monetize his exploits, possibly as a way of funding his lifestyle in Malaysia. And he was particularly active too on the dark web and he became well known in international paedophile circles. He was almost famous in those circles and he was also prolific on the love zone, the aforementioned defunct website that served as a pedo playground. In a message to its users, he described how he had fallen in love with South Asia and its adorable kids. He wrote, I have gotten particularly close with one family whom I have known about six years. I have sexual contact with four of the girls in the family and, though the family obviously does not approve it, they try to work around it as they know I can be potentially valuable to them in the future. On planning to marry one of the girls when she turns 18, he wrote, I feel my situation could strongly benefit me and that my partner is still quite young and I have known her since she was seven and I can influence her young mind to mould her into the perfect wife. My ambition once married would be for our family to be like foster carers for children, temporary or long term. He also said middle-class children were protected no-go areas, while the less privileged may be, quote, ugly ill-mannered and unhealthy, but more susceptible to abuse. Huckle continued to live in Malaysia until his arrest in December 2014. He would periodically return to his parents' house in Kent, but he spent the vast majority of his time abroad. And it was during this period, 2011 to 2014, that he was most prolific. So, as I just mentioned, Huckle was indeed arrested. It's not a spoiler. We know he was in prison at the time of his murder in 2019, serving 22 life sentences. But how did the authorities finally manage to catch up with him? Well, before we answer that question, let's just take another break and we'll be right back. So, how did Richard Huckle's evil and prolonged campaign of child sex abuse finally come to an end? Well, in order to answer that question, we must first head to Australia. 
In early 2014, officers from Task Force Argus, a branch of the Queensland Police Service responsible for the investigation of online child exploitation and abuse, were tasked with stopping so-called paedophile tourism. These officers soon uncovered the existence of the Love Zone, the website Huckle had been using to share photos and videos of his child's sexual abuse. The Love Zone was one of the world's largest and most secure paedophile networks, an online space where tens of thousands traded their sickening material. The website dealt in abuse, video and images of children, swapped and boasted about on a dark web forum, accessible only through an encrypted browser. The website was so much more than a platform to swap images of child sexual abuse though. It was a space for like-minded individuals to meet, to network, to share their stories of abuse and to encourage each other. And for a time, it worked. The platform facilitated the abuse of hundreds, if not thousands of children over many years across all corners of the world. Membership was tightly controlled. Quiet accounts raised suspicion and could be suddenly terminated. Those who did stay had to upload new material every 30 days. More than 45,000 users complied. But what those thousands of users never realised, even as heavy users began to disappear, was that the site was now being run by the police. In early 2014, inside an anonymous-looking office block in the Australian city of Brisbane, a crack team of detectives were administering the site, analysing images, monitoring conversations and connecting users with their crimes. They made dozens of arrests and, as key players were taken down, they were able to gain access to previously impenetrable areas of the network, areas where Richard Huckle had been hiding. When officers analysed the photos and videos that Huckle had published on the site, they soon realised that he had covered his tracks pretty well. And when I say the photos and videos that Huckle had uploaded, uh, obviously they, the police, didn't know that it was Huckle who was behind them. He was just a random, unidentified user that they were desperate to identify so that they could prevent the further abuse of innocent children. So when they analysed all of his photos and videos, it was pretty clear that he'd done a good job of hiding his identity. His victims' faces had been blurred out. He had erased the metadata. That's the information attributed to photos and videos detailing the date and the location that the photos were taken in. And he'd also been careful to not give any clues to his location by hiding everyday items, such as food and drink, that may have identified where he was in the world. However, he had missed one crucial key identifier. Embedded in some of his images, overlooked when he swept the files for metadata, was the brand and model of his Olympus camera. It was a tiny clue, but it was something. Officers examined photography sites such as Flickr and Trek Earth for photos taken in Southeast Asia using the same maker model. They found some perfectly legal images from Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam taken with the same maker model of camera. It was clear that the photographer had a proclivity for shooting children, sometimes naked, but the shots weren't technically illegal, and so the photographer hadn't thought twice about uploading them publicly. Police traced these photographs to an email address, which led them to his accounts on other websites. One of these accounts was registered under a similar name 
to that of the unidentified user on the love zone. And officers knew this couldn't be a coincidence. The two people had to be one and the same, Richard Huckle. The digital trail also led to a studio named Photography Productions. The studio was based in Malaysia and it linked to Huckle's public Facebook profile. There he'd been more brazen than police could have even imagined. On his photos on Facebook, there were pictures of similar children and the same children that appeared in the abuse material that had been published online. This all linked to Huckle. Officers from Task Force Argus called their counterparts at the National Crime Agency in the UK, passing on the raw intelligence about Huckle's crimes and his likely identity. But Huckle would remain in Malaysia untouched for another four months as the Malaysian authorities didn't believe they had enough evidence to arrest him. It has to be said that the Malaysian authorities have contested this, saying that they were not notified of Huckle's offending until May 2016, two years after his identity was revealed. So I don't know what the truth is here. What I do know is that Huckle was able to continue offending for a further four months and I think the NCA in the UK did come under criticism for uh, for not doing more to, to bring him back to the UK. Um, however, it must also be said that these crimes took place abroad. So ordinarily, Huckle would have been tried in the country in which he'd committed the crimes. Uh, we'll go on to that in a bit more detail for any kind of legal geeks out there uh, in terms of how we were able to bring him back over here to try him for crimes committed on foreign soil. So at this point, police were just so close. They had an identity, a location, they had an array of online profiles, but they had no way to reach the man himself. Until, that is, an eagle-eyed officer saw a Facebook post made by Huckle celebrating the fact that he had just booked a flight home for Christmas. He had even hashtagged the airline. It was almost too easy. And so Huckle was arrested at Gatwick Airport on the 19th of December in 2014 as he flew home to visit his mum and dad in Kent. Computers and hard drives and mobile phones in his possession contained more than 20,000 indecent images of children, around 1,000 depicting children he had abused himself. Shortly after his arrest, investigators from the National Crime Agency described the scale of offending as unprecedented and exceptional. This really was the worst we had ever seen in this country. Now, surprisingly, given the severity of the charges Huckle faced, he was granted bail under the condition that he resided at his parents' address whilst investigations continued. As far as the police were concerned, he had no criminal record and no contact with minors at this point. Therefore, after interviewing him, they released him temporarily, as it would likely take some time to analyse and retrieve evidence from his computer equipment uh, so that they could build their case against him. It would later come out, however, that Huckle had continued to attend his church in London and had had access to children there. So, as I mentioned earlier, a full investigation was conducted. The police referred themselves to their regulator uh, and ultimately the authorities were satisfied that Huckle had no victims in the UK. Um, 
so certainly in the church in Kent, no victims, and that was very quickly established. But it didn't come out about the church in London for some time that he had continued to attend that church whilst on remand. Um, so yeah, the police basically were in trouble for that. And, uh, that church could not be named and I've not been able to find a name for it and I've no reason to do that anyway. Uh, but as far as I can see, uh, there was no abuse, uh, conducted to anyone affiliated with that church or in total, there were no victims in the UK. In Huckle's initial police interview, he made no comment throughout. His baffled parents supported him, refusing to believe their son was a monster. However, one night, whilst he was drunk, Huckle was confronted by his mother about the allegations, and he admitted raping children aged 3 to 13. His devastated parents refused to allow him to remain in their house from this point on, and they telephoned the police immediately. At this point, Huckle was re-arrested and charged with 91 counts of child sex offences. He was remanded in custody initially at HMP Lewes before later being transferred to HMP Belmarsh, a truly horrific prison in the UK due to the severity of his charges. At an initial hearing at the Old Bailey in January 2016, Huckle pleaded not guilty to all 91 charges and it took over an hour to read these charges out in court. Prosecutors started to prepare three separate trials as they didn't believe a jury should be subjected to all of the graphic evidence that would be presented in a single trial. In April 2016, during a preliminary trial hearing, and perhaps on the advice of his legal counsel, Huckle pleaded guilty to 71 of the 91 charges he was facing after a request to watch all of the evidence against him in court, which is something I think the British tabloids picked up on. It was a truly sickening act on his behalf. He sat through dozens of hours of footage of him sexually abusing and raping children. And I just think that's a dreadful thing uh, for him to, to be allowed to have done. During the hearings, the full scale of Huckle's crimes became apparent for the first time. The prosecution, led by Brian O'Neill QC, showed evidence of a long history of abuse that started during Huckle's gap year in 2006 and continued for eight or nine years until he was apprehended in 2014. The vast majority of child abuse on his laptop was never recovered as he refused to help police retrieve the encrypted data. Police were only able to find a tiny percentage of the videos and photographs and they got specialists in to uh, dissect his laptop. It had been so cleverly encrypted that even the best people in this country were unable to locate where he'd hidden it. The hearings revealed some of the ruses Huckle employed in order to procure his victims, such as taking children out on day trips from orphanages and escorting them home from their own birthday party. As mentioned earlier, Huckle had even talked about marrying one of his young victims so that he could set up a foster home and abuse what he called a cycle of children who would pass through his home and he could then turn paedophilia into a full-time job. Huckle also created a ledger of his abuse where he scored the scale of abuse each victim suffered. 
It was from this ledger that the estimated number of children abused, 200, was derived. Although so far authorities have only discovered photographic evidence of the abuse of 29 children due to Huckle refusing to give officers the passwords for the encrypted areas of his hard drives. At the end of his sentencing, Huckle stood in prayer as he was sentenced by Judge Peter Rook QC. He handed Huckle 22 life sentences and ordered him to serve a minimum of 25 years behind bars. In a pre-prepared statement to the media, Huckle claimed he was remorseful and that he had acted on the basis of immaturity. He said, quote, I really understand and acknowledge the true scale of damage it caused to the Malaysian community. I had hoped to escape this mundane life of solitude in the UK, yet was overwhelmed by the attention I received in Malaysia. I completely misjudged the affections I received from these children. My low self-esteem and lack of confidence with women was no excuse for me to use these children as an outlet. I am open and eager to rehabilitate from this offending behaviour. I don't want to become a martyr to sex tourism in Malaysia. This was all my doing as a consequence of my immaturity and I'm truly remorseful. Huckle did present further mitigating factors in his defence, specifically in relation to the abuse he inflicted. However, there are some reporting restrictions around this and also it is so graphic that even if I could tell you what those mitigating factors were, I wouldn't want to go there because as I said, it is very specific in relation to the abuse he inflicted. So um, again, it's just vile. In his sentencing remarks, Judge Peter Rook QC said, In this case, both harm and culpability are extreme. There are no victim impact statements in this case, as a prosecution have presented the case on the basis of the images and videos found on your laptop. This has enabled the case to be presented without risking adding to the trauma of your victims by interviewing them so that they have to relive their experiences. However, given the extreme youth of the children you abused and the vulnerability of both the children and their community, I have no doubt that your offending has caused or is very likely to cause severe psychological harm to them as they become old enough to appreciate the enormity of what you have done to them. Even more so if they ever appreciate that your abuse of them has been distributed on the dark web. There is a strong likelihood that you have blighted their lives forever. And I think, considering some sentencing remarks I've read, I think he's really put it lightly, to be fair. So, of course, this is one of those cases where the catalogue of abuse is so extreme and so prolific that there are likely many more victims that we will never know about, perhaps way more than the 200 estimated by police. Some victims were so young they may grow up to have no conscious memory of the abuse. However, it will certainly have caused untold damage to them. There are families who will feel guilt at letting Huckle get too close to their inner sanctum. Families who were even complicit, perhaps, as Huckle himself suggested. Likewise, there are likely thousands of other abusers and users of the love zone who got away with their crimes and who are still abusing now on similar platforms. Huckle's murder in prison two years after his arrest will, I am sure, spark the age-old debate of whether to bring back capital punishment. 
Some people will see Paul Fitzgerald, Huckle's murderer, and himself a convicted sex offender, oh the irony, as the hero in this story, and I get that, but despite the indescribable abuse inflicted on his victims, and I don't use that word lightly, I very deliberately chose not to describe the majority of the abuse in detail here. Did he really deserve to be tortured for 75 minutes and for some random person to take his life in his prison cell? Or did he deserve to rot in jail for 25 years? I really don't know. Perhaps that's a discussion that we can have over on our Facebook group. Paul Fitzgerald was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Richard Huckle, and he was told that he would serve a minimum of 34 years. In court, he described how he had gotten carried away by how much fun he was having, and how he had intended to cook and eat parts of Huckle's body. Mr Justice Lavender described him as a psychopath with an antisocial personality disorder and Fitzgerald said he would do it all over again if he had the chance again. So on that note, I think let's just leave it there. It's been a really, really difficult episode for me to research, write and to um, present to you just now. I found that particularly hard. Um, I'm really grateful if you have listened. Uh, hopefully it's... Um, you found the detail I've gone into necessary um, and not uh, in too much detail. Um, But yeah, well done if you've made it all the way through. I'll be back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, please support me and Bethan on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Chuck a little bit of money our way and make our day and help me get over this uh, this horrific episode. Until next time then, I'll, uh, I'll see you then. Bye.